Good morning. This morning we are going to be in the book of 1 Peter, or the letter, the first letter of Peter, however you want to say it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. If you don't, there are these really bright blue Bibles right in front of you. Grab one, go to page 1117, and it should be right around there. I think. I do the bulletin, so I should know, but I think. As you're turning there, I want to just give us a refresher on where we have been. We've been working through Peter's letter. I say we. Pastor Dan has been taking us through Peter's letter to the elect exiles of various cities. And what we've seen is kind of two big ideas. The first one is this glorious truth. We have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the first point. The point is that Christ's very resurrection is the ground in which we can stand upon knowing that we have been forgiven and accepted and stand alive before God. Our sins have been forgiven and we are alive with Christ. Our salvation is wrapped up not in our power, but the power of God, the very power he used to raise Jesus from the dead. That is a glorious salvation. And the second point is verse 13. Therefore, because of this amazing salvation, therefore, some things have changed. So far, we've seen that three things have changed. First, where we place our hope. Second, how we pursue holiness. And then third, how we conduct ourselves with the fear of the Lord. Now, if you notice something about these changes, they're mainly in you, right? In where you rest your hope and how you conduct your life. But with today's text, we're going to see something new. We're going to see a shift. So I hope you've had time to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 22 and read through the end of the chapter. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the, gra- the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Okay. So what we see is that our salvation has necessitated a change. Like I said, first the change was in us, how we do things, where we put our hope. But now we see that it necessitates a change in our relationships as well. How we live with one another, how we treat one another, look at one another, how we love one another. There's one command, love one another. And through this command, we see that to be a Christian 
means that there is a community. There has to be one another's, if you will. Peter shows us that to be an elect exile, if you're an elect exile, that means you're among God's elect exiles. If you're in God's covenant, if you're in covenant relationship with God, you're part of a covenant community. There is the implication that you have to have one another. And our interactions in that community is what we're going to look at in this text. We are to live in community, showing love to one another. And thankfully, though, this text doesn't just say love one another. It gives us reasons why and how we can do this. It doesn't say just you should love one another. It tells us, friend, you, you can. You can love one another. And so our takeaway from this text is going to be that Christians are committed to and able to live the life of love. Christian, you are committed to and able to live the life of love. This text reminds us that we should love and we can love. We are committed to love and we are able to love. So to see this, we're going to break the text into three sections. We're Baptists, that's what we do. We have three sections, three points in a poem. A Presbyterian tried to steal that from me this week at a preaching seminar. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Man, it's a Baptist thing. Don't do that. Anyway, we have three points. Why we are committed to love, how we are supposed to love, and why we are able to love. Why we are committed to love, how we are supposed to love, and why we are able to love. Let's jump in. Right at the top, verse 22, the first half of verse 22, <clears throat> before we get to the command of love, we find our first reason why we are committed to love. Why we love is because we are committed to it. To understand that, I want to ask three questions. The first question you may be asking actually yourself right now is, Pastor, I don't see the word committed in the text. You're right. But in the text we read, having purified your souls. Having purified your souls. Peter is saying that something's happened. Something's changed about you. And, and what this change is, this, this is purification. And we need to understand what he means by that. What's it mean to purify your soul? Well, to get to the answer, we need to go to the Old Testament. Peter's drawing a word that is very significant in the Old Testament. In the Greek Old Testament, when we look at Exodus 19, Exodus 19, after God has redeemed his people out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, Moses has sung a song, they've gotten manna from heaven, they've got water from the rock, and God says, you've seen what I've done. And if you would obey my commands, you'll be my treasured possessions among all the peoples. God says that, and what does the people of Israel say? Verse 10 of Exodus 19, we will do it. We will do it. And so the Lord tells Moses, consecrate them, because I'm coming to be with them. The word consecrate is the same word that Peter's drawing on here. So the context of Exodus and the use of that word helps us see that it's, it's meant to convey the idea of making holy. Make them holy. 
because the holy God is coming to be with them. Consecrate them. And the idea of making holy, it means set them apart, distinguish them, and set them apart for a purpose. They are to be committed to a purpose, consecrated or committed to a purpose. So we see that Christian, you are committed. So our next question, when was I committed? When was I committed? When you obeyed the command of the gospel to repent and believe. Your conversion, your commitment happened at your conversion. Look back at the text. Peter says, having purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth. Your obedience to the truth is your receiving the gospel in faith. Pastor Dan talked about this at the very beginning of the letter, verses one to three. We see that Peter's addressing his readers, the elect exiles, and he says, you are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. So because of God's plan in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, so by the Spirit setting you apart, committing you for the purpose of obedience to Christ Jesus and the washing or the sprinkling with his blood. That for, the purpose, the picture here is not simply the obedience that follows in the life of the Christian. That's verses starting at verse 13 and following. The, the text has in mind the obedient response to the command the gospel gives to the hearer of repent and believe. This is why Paul links faith in Christ, having faith, to being obedient. All throughout Romans, we read the obedience of the faith. Having faith is the first act of obedience in the Christian life. Peter, even later in chapter 3, if you move your eyes over to chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. I'm going to let Pastor Dan explain that text. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Obey and conversion are put together, parallel. You are committed when you come to know a saving faith in Christ Jesus. But what are you committed to? Well, I know the answer is love, but a special kind of love. Look back at the text one more time. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. There it is. The word for. It's telling us that there's a purpose for this being committed. A goal. There's a result. There's an aim. It's sincere brotherly love. And that's, that's a reorienting truth. You have been saved not to be happy, not to be rich, not to have no fear of going without things, not to get things. You have been saved. One purpose of being saved is to be part of a community that rightly loves one another. You've been committed to a sincere brotherly love. In 1 Timothy, this isn't just Peter, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, the, the aim, the end goal of our charge 
is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The purpose of Paul's charge, the charge that Timothy was to give to the elders, charge that we have heard, the goal is love. The point is that because we are committed to love, love is not something extra to the Christian faith. That's what we're getting at here. It's not something extra. It's a core part of the Christian walk. It is a life of love. Now, why, why is this? Why is this so important? Why is it important to talk about? Why is Peter spending so much time talking about it? Two, <clears throat> two reasons. First, love is part of the Christian walk because it is a testimony to the truth of our confession. It is a testimony to the truth of our confession. John 13, Jesus commands. He doesn't suggest, friends. He, he commands. He says, a new commandment I give to you, speaking to his disciples, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's clearly showing love is key. It is the mark of the Christian. In 1970, a little story, 1970, Francis Schaeffer published a work called The Mark of the Christian. I wonder what that was. I wonder what his point was. This work was actually, funny enough, it originally intended to be an appendix to a larger work that he had written. Just a small little quick read, about 60 pages, more of a pamphlet. I'm telling you all these things to encourage you to go buy it and read it. It's accessible. It's in English. It's great. It's short. All good things. It's really helpful. So he published this, though, because he and the, and the, and the publishers realized, no, this is, this is too good. This doesn't need to be tucked away. People need this. And in this, he hits this topic right on the head. In a world that is so individual, by the way, Schaefer is writing in the 20th century, 1900s, right? So, like, we think we're individual now. It's been a theme since about Genesis 3. Um, in a world that's so individual, so inwardly focused, and adverse to self-sacrificing love, one of the greatest ways Christians are distinguished is by their love. Schaefer explains love and the unity it attests to, right? Love is just the showing of a true unified relationship. Love and the unity it attests to is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. Friends, it is a testimony to the truth of our confession. It's not an add-on. It reveals we have received the love of Christ. In his love, he obeyed the Father and he gave himself for us. We claim to live in light of his love. And so our love for one another reveals that we truly have received 
rest upon and believe in his life-giving love. Our love is our shirt that says Team Jesus as we are out in the world and people see us. And that leads us to the second reason. It distinguishes us, but even more so. Love is part of the Christian walk because it distinguishes us from the world with a purpose. And that's to show the power and the glory and the wisdom of God. We see in Ephesians 2 that the church's work, or that Christ's work, excuse me, that Christ's work has united those who are enemies. Those who have no love, actually have hate for one another, are now united in love through the peace that he has given them. His work overcomes all divisions, no matter how high that wall is and no matter how far that person is from you. You can be united through the peace that Christ gives. That's Ephesians 2. Ephesians 3 tells us why. Ephesians 3, Ephesians 3 verse 10. So that through the church, that new people that are united, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So that all the world will see what God has done. That's what our love reveals. It doesn't, doesn't just make us separate. It reveals the glory and love of God. The purpose is so that those who don't, do not know the love of Christ will say, there's something different about those people. That's not normal. Why are they getting along? Why are they truly bound to one another? Something has happened to them. Our love draws the world in so that those who do not yet know the love of God will see it displayed among us and hear it proclaimed from us so that they may receive it themselves. So why are we committed to love? Because we have been set apart by our conversion with the purpose of loving one another, to live the life of love which reveals the glory of God. I think there's one major point, I'm sure there's many points, of application to draw from this. But one main point, love is not an add-on. We need to understand that love for one another is not an add-on. It's not like when you get your pie a la mode. I don't know if I said that right. I'm going to speak French from Missouri. <laughs> but it's not when you just add on the ice cream to the pie. It's part of the pie. It's part of being a Christian. It's easy to think of love for one another as an add-on. But this text, and as we saw in Ephesians and in 1 Timothy, this text and the New Testament make it clear it is essential to the Christian life. So how can we tell if we're thinking of it as an add-on? I think that's, it's, it's how, do we, how do I identify this in my life? Well, for some of us, it might come out in our actual interactions with one another. That's the most in-your-face way to identify that we're not being loving. Or maybe it's in our thoughts about one another. Does hateful speech or sharp words or snarky comments come to mind or more naturally come out of your mouth than love and encouragement and affection? That's like the most in-your-face way to see it. 
Another way, though, that we might think, see that we're thinking of love as an add-on, for some of us, it might be just wondering what our participation in the body, what the importance is of that. We think that being part of the body, being part of one another, is just an add-on as well. Being present on Sunday, being in one another's lives. Now, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you have to be in everyone's life at the same depth with everyone, with deep, deep relationships with everybody. That's impossible. And if you do that, that's your full-time job. And I don't even know if you could do that as a full-time job. But do you know anyone deeply? Are you committed and do people know that? Can they rely on you? And friends, the good news is there's, there's great ways that we, we make that available. We have men that are going to start gathering to talk and share with how they do journaling together. We have core class and we have small groups. Take someone to lunch or coffee. Write notes to people to show them that you're thinking about them, praying for them, and love them. There are ways to show and express our love um, even whenever we have thought or maybe can think it is an add-on. But how we think, talk, and engage the body reveals whether we think love is an add-on or we think it's the way of the Christian life. So friends, we are committed, we are set apart to the life of love because we have received the love of Christ. So let's live it out. Let's press into it and let's reveal the love that we've received. Now, you may already be thinking this and didn't talk about it yet because I'm trying to keep you with me. Something very important for us to do is to define our terms. Specifically, love. I've said love a lot. You might be sick of hearing the word love because we hear it outside of these walls a lot. So what do I mean when I say love? Well, what does the Bible mean when it says love? That's the better question. The world talks about it a lot. Is that what love means? Or, don't think about the world, think about my own head, is what I think love means what love is. Am I in line with what Scripture says? Well, let's find out. Let's look back at the text. We're going to start back at the beginning of verse 22, and we're going to just read to the end of verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Here is the actual command to love. And when he gives the command, Peter says, or gives us, more than just love in a vacuum, but he fills it out. He explains what it should look like. To understand this, I think we can think of an arrow, okay? You know, Valentine's Day just went by, so it's very timely. Um, more specifically, think about shooting an arrow. Think of archery, terms of archery. First, there is a target with archery. We are to love one another. I know, that was a hard one to figure out. It's right there. I love it when it's that easy. But because it's that easy, it's easy to be overlooked or assumed as well. What I mean is that we're not supposed to love the church as this nebulous entity. 
We are to love people. That is actually the church. It's one another. We're not to be loving people in the sense that we're just doing nice things randomly to anyone all the time. Not a bad thing to do. Not a bad thing to do. But that's not what's in view here when we talk about this command to love. So friends, look around. You're all looking at me right now. Literally, look around. This is an uncomfortable exercise. That's your one another. That's your one another. Those who are in community with us here at Chapelwood. In all of our differences, whether it's origin, background, age, experience, whether you're single, married, have kids, retired, unemployed, newly moved in, newly to the country, we are supposed to love one another, these people. Second, with an arrow, you have to have a bow to shoot your arrow. You have to have a driving source. We are to love one another from pure hearts. From pure hearts. The text actually has this phrase at the beginning. It says, from a pure heart, love one another earnestly. It doesn't change the meaning. It just changes the emphasis. He's saying, where does your love come from? It comes from pure intentions, pure heart. The way we love is important. Our motivations matter. We love in a way that is true and honest, that's other-seeking, that's good-doing and God-glorifying. We don't love to gain. And we don't have this facade of love. The word for sincere means unhypocritical. It's not a facade that I say I do love, but inside I don't have love. We have integrity in our love. We believe it and we do it. And third, the engineers are gonna come, come at me after this. If you're an engineer, please don't. Um, third, if love is the arrow, it has to have high velocity. Velocity is aimed speed. See, engineers smiling, so I think I'm right. But it has to have high velocity. It has to move and move with an, a purpose at a target. We already talked about the target. But we are to love one another earnestly. Earnestly. Now, you may wonder why velocity matters. Archery. We're in an archery picture here, right? Specifically, bow hunting. If you want your arrow, or if you want to be successful, you want your arrow to go fast. Because when you release, the animal can hear the string, and they'll jump or move or run, and you'll miss. Or, if there's wind, it will knock your arrow off course. Do you want your arrow to go fast and hard at the target. The ESV translates the word here as earnestly. That's a fine word choice. You have a King James or New King James or NASB. They, they give you options like constantly or fervently. The idea is something that's readily there and persevering through. It has high velocity. Our love needs to be readily there, timely. It's not genuine love when it has to be drawn out. Like Daniel the Tiger uh, talks about obedience. I reference Daniel the Tiger all the time. Right? He says obedience is right away and all the way. Christian love is not to be prodded, but is timely, readily there. And additionally, it carries through. It perseveres. 
like an arrow with high velocity. Christian love is carried through no matter the distance or the challenges the relationships we're in may face. It perseveres. Ephesians 4.2 explains that the Christian love is of humility, gentleness, patience, sorry, the Christian life, humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love is standing beside someone in the midst of struggle or pain. When that brother or sister has failed again, we stand beside them. Even when they continue to struggle, we continue to bear. Our love perseveres through distance and circumstances. So what's this mean for us, friends? Well, where does your practice of love not line up with this picture, with the way Scripture describes it here? When you reflect on your love for one another, is it only for the one another that you know or that you're like? Again, we only have so much bandwidth. We need to be very careful about adding categories that are not here. But the question we should ask is, is your one another only a matter of convenience or similarity? Or do you seek to know your family? Second, in our love for one another, we need to evaluate our heart. Do we seek out one another for gain or, again, out of ease to check the love box? Because I know hanging out with that person is easy and will get that task done. Do we seek certain relationships to get something out of them? And it should come from a pure heart. Then what is the velocity of your love? Does it persevere even when things are hard? Does it bear with those who can be difficult? Does it hit its mark in a timely manner? Are you there and present when your brother and sister is needing it most? Friends, we are committed, we're set apart to this kind of love, to a targeted love, to a purely motivated love, and to a persevering love. Now, if we're honest, that's a really hard love to live out. That's really hard. We are committed to a kind of love that is not natural to us. It is not a kind of love that we are used to. When we ponder this, we realize that living out this kind of love is like trying to hold up a house with dowel rods. I'm sure if you use enough, it'd work, but the illustration is supposed to, it's, it's ridiculous. They're going to bend, they're going to buckle, and they're going to snap. They're weak. Why? Why would we bend and buckle and snap under this kind of call, not knowing we're able to do it? Well, because there are some people that in my sin, it's hard to love. And for me to love this way, I have to give up some things that I might not want to. Those two reasons alone make us snap under the pressure to love this way, in our sin, in our flesh. We know that we should, but where can we look to know that we can? 
Well, we look to the rest of the passage. Here's the good news. We have the power to love this way. We can love this way. Last three verses. We're going to start middle of 22. So we read the imperative again, the command again. We're going to read through verse 23. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 23, here we go. Since you have been born again, not of imperishable seed, or not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. What we see is we are able to love because we've been born again. And more importantly, because of the nature of our new birth. There's something here that the text is really drawing on, really highlighting that we need to see. In this, Peter brings up his probably favorite concept so far in his letter, the imperishable nature of our salvation. Right? Peter loves this truth. He's been hammering it home. Our faith, our inheritance, the payment for our redemption, and now the seed that we come from are all imperishable. Not fading away, not going away. What's the point? Our salvation will last. Our salvation will stand and our salvation will last. And how do we know that? Verse 23, because this life comes through the living and abiding word of God. The word that gave us life remains. It will not pass away. And to further drive his point home, we see this text, a citation in the text from a very important spot in the Old Testament. Starting in verse 24, we read, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This citation, if you have not already seen the footnote of your Bible, is from Isaiah 40. While only a couple verses are cited, I think he has the whole passage in mind. Because what's Isaiah 40 all about? You have a hope that will last. God is going to come to his exiles, it's written to exiles, and he is giving them comfort. He's giving them hope because their sins are forgiven and because he is going to be with them forever and because it stands upon his word which will last forever. So why is Peter citing this? Because as elect exiles, you've not been born again by a perishable, withering seed but by the hope-filled and exile-ending, the sin-removing and life-giving word of God. The same word to the exiles in Isaiah 40. Because in the gospel, we have the same promises. Your sins are forgiven by the payment of Christ's blood and his resurrection. Your God has come in Christ, is with you through his spirit, and will return to be with you. And all of this is founded, given to you, preserved, and stands upon the eternal promise-keeping word of God. The same word to the exiles. The powers around us as we are in exile will end. 
Think about, think about Peter's readers. They are surrounded by Rome. The greatest power in all its glitz and glamour. And then we look back at Rome, we're like, how did it even last as long as it did? The grass withers, the flower of the grass, its glory falls. Everything in this life will end, but your salvation in Christ will stand as long as God's word stands. It will stand forever. The point is, in Christ, you've been born again by an imperishable seed, and you have an imperishable hope. Now, why does that give you power? That's the power to love? I'm talking about hope. Why does an imperishable hope give you the power to love? This hope is our power to love because it overcomes every enemy of our love. Anything that impedes our love is put flat by this hope. One pastor explained, one thing that keeps us from loving is the fear that if we pay the price of love, we'll miss out on the bright things that this world is supposed to offer us. We become allured by the grass and its apparent glory. And that causes us to fear missing out. And then we don't think, we don't think it's worth it to be poor in spirit. We don't think it's worth it to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep, to be meek and humble in all of our conduct with one another, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful to those who do not deserve it, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers even when it's hard, to be persecuted. We don't think it's worth it to pray for our enemies. We don't think it's worth it to bear with one another in love because it's gonna cost me. We don't think it's worth it to love one another earnestly from a pure heart because the grass looks really good and its glory is a pretty flower. We don't think it's worth it because we don't believe. We don't think it's worth it because we don't hold tight to our hope. It is true. We will miss out on the grass and its apparent glory. But when we believe what we read here, we have an unshakable and unfading hope. A hope that reminds us that the glory of this world is passing, but your life is not. We have a hope that pulls our eyes away from what is passing and sets them on our blessed hope, Christ and his coming and return. We have been born again by the abiding word of God, giving us imperishable life and hope. And so we are free with this hope. We are free to commit ourselves to what will last, to things of eternal significance, such as loving one another sacrificially, earnestly, in ups and downs, in diversity, in hardship, from a pure heart. We can because we have the hope that takes away anything that would impede it. Now, friends, let's tie this up, tie it up a bit here at the end. Two things for you to take home and ponder. First, friend, do you have this kind of hope? Do you truly 
cling and rest in this hope? Do you want to know and experience the love that this hope produces? Do you want to be a part of a family that loves like this? There is bad news and there is good news. The bad news is that your heart yearns for it, but the Bible says it will not find it in this world, given from something in this world. We are in bondage to our futile ways. We just read that. We are in bondage to our sin. We cannot love this way on our own. But the good news is that in his love, Jesus came to live the perfect life, paying for when we do not love, when he died on the cross, loving people perfectly as he did live for us, and offering that to us to receive by faith. The good news is that you can obey the truth, this gospel, and receive the hope that allows for this kind of love and be brought into the family that loves this way. Second, to you, Chapelwood. See the hope that we have in the word of God. Just for a second, just see it. Just think about it. Sometimes an application is just think about how amazing this is. You have this hope. Not you might be able to get this hope if you work really hard, or you might get this hope in the future. Friend, you have this hope as you rest upon Christ. And so let us take our eyes from what is fleeting and falling and let us put it upon Christ and his people. Let us love him and through our love for him, love his body, his people, our one another. This, this means, it doesn't mean don't have goals and aspirations. What it does mean is don't let your pursuits in the world take you away from and neglect your love for where Christ has placed you. You are one another's, one another. Your brothers and sisters need your love as much as you need theirs. So let's seek after things of eternal significance and love one another earnestly. May we rest upon our imperishable hope and may we live the life of love that the Lord has given us with one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning that out of your great mercy, from the depths of your love, you sent your Son to live in perfect love with you and his neighbor and to show us your love, the distance in which you would plummet upon the cross paying for our sins so that through our faith we can receive your love and we can show it to our brothers and sisters. Father, we pray that you would remind us, put this truth before us, remind us of the imperishable hope we have because we have been born not of this world but from you, the God who is love. Help us to have an abiding love. Help us to have a love that forgives, that seeks after and that is Christ-exalting. Lord, we pray that you would do all these things so that Christ would be known and seen and glorified, and so that we would be filled with joy and love 
for you and others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.